Good morning, everyone. Um, it's great to see you. Um, my name's Stu. I'm, I'm part of the team here. Um, I'm a little bit of a last-minute sub. Um, Andy um, was supposed to be up this morning. He is sick, so I've been drafted in. So this might be a little bit sketchy, but um, bear with me. Please be patient. Please be kind and all of that good stuff. Um, it is Father's Day. We're going to keep saying it because whenever we're up here looking at you, we tend to get two different kinds of looks. Um, one is of kids. You're thinking, oh my goodness, I need to rush out. I need to get that Toblerone in that book that he's never going to read. Um, and then also there's going to be some fathers here going to be like, I haven't got that Toblerone in the book I'm not going to read yet. So um, <laughs> this is fun to kind of like scan the room and see, yeah, some of you are going to be busy this afternoon. Um, <laughs> so it is, it is great to see you. Um, as it is Father's Day, I, I do want to speak to the men in the room, just for one second, if that's all right. Um, I think, unfortunately, whenever we talk about men in church so often, um, we do have this tendency to boil things down to stereotypes, um, that being a man, manhood is all about what we've achieved, what we've both hunted and gathered. And yeah, I want to say maybe something slightly different this morning. So to the men, to the fathers, to the grandfathers, those of you who are passionate about fathering children, whether they are yours or someone else's, as I've got to know some of you over the course of the past two years, as I've spent time in your homes, shared meals with you, chatted with you, I guess I want to say something different. I want to thank you. I want to thank you for your character for the things that are going on underneath the surface, not for what you've hunted or gathered, but for the things that are going on in the depths of your heart. Um, I want to thank you for your compassion, for your wisdom, for your patience, for your playfulness, uh, for the amount of time that you devote to being present with your children. I want to thank you for that. I want to bless you in that. Because I think how we want to talk about being men, actually we're able to model something into this town, into this region, and into this nation amongst our friends, our family members, of what it looks like to live in that kind of way. We as men struggle with comparison. Shocker. Um, yet I think whenever it comes to talking about being a man, the most valuable thing that you can do is to embrace the nuance of your character and quit the stereotyping and the comparison. Embrace all who you are with your unique quirks, your passions, and your awful, awful dad jokes. Embrace them all. Live in that kind of way because your children, your grandchildren, and those of you who are fathering people like me in this community, we don't want you to be anybody other than yourself. So fathers, grandfathers, those of you who intentionally father, whether you're fathering children that are yours or someone else's, we are so incredibly thankful for you. You've got a Bible with you. I'd love you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. I want to um, unpack a parable of Jesus this morning. Um, in Luke chapter 15, I'm, I'm going to read just a few verses uh, at the start of the passage, and then I'll jump down. But Luke 15, verse 1 says this. Um, it's on page 725 in the Bibles that are around you if you're hunting it out. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered round to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Jesus has begun to build a bit of a reputation around himself as he has journeyed with his disciples from town to town, declaring the nearness of the kingdom of God and demonstrating the reality of that amongst people. He's built a bit of a reputation as one who eats and drinks with sinners. The Pharisees who were following him, trying to catch him out, were noticing this and they were looking around the kind of people who were sat around his particular table. People that they thought shouldn't be there. People who they thought shouldn't be sitting with a rabbi. And so Jesus goes on from this to share three stories, three parables. One about lost sheep, another one about a lost coin. But I want to drop down to verse 11 to share a parable that means so much to so many of us. And I do think is applicable on a day like today. Verse 11, Jesus continued, There is a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He was that hungry. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to eat, food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him, and ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring in his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. But meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. And when he came near to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. And so he called to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he, um, he has him back safe and sound. And the elder brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray for a second, shall we?
Father, we come before you today as sons and daughters seeking your insight, your wisdom, your grace, your healing, and your direction for every single step. Father, would you be present amongst us by your Holy Spirit? Would you guide us in the truth? Lead us away from wrong thinking about you and about ourselves. May you reveal your goodness to us, I pray. You're so welcome to speak in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle John writes these words. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. I love the simplicity of John's words. I love his defiance, even with those four words, and so we are. This morning, we are going to share communion together in just a few moments. Our family meal of bread and wine, where we each, as the children of God, will gather around a common table to celebrate God's goodness to us. And all I want to do this morning is just gently lead us towards the table by reflecting on this particular parable and just drawing out a few thoughts, a few thoughts around the kind of love that the Father has lavished upon us as his children. But first of all, I want to draw your attention to this image that's on the screen. This painting called The Prodigal by Charlie Matsky. How does it make you feel? What do you see? What sparks in your thinking? What sparks in your emotions as you reflect and gaze upon this painting? More than anything else that I'm going to say today, I want to say this. This is the kind of love that the Father has given to us. The kind of love that he has lavished upon us. This story, this parable from Luke 15 means so much to so many of us. It draws us, draws our attention to the heart of the Father, his nature, and the kind of love that he reveals to us. And so I just want to walk through some of this passage again and just draw out a few thoughts. So keep your Bible open and we'll just work through this. And I love to um, pull back to verse 19. The son is journeying along the road towards his father's home. He's rehearsing lines to himself over and over. I'm not worthy to be your son. I'm not worthy to be your son. Make me a servant. Make me your servant. He would have been thinking to himself, I have disgraced my father. I have ashamed myself. I have lost everything. I stink. Look at the state of me. In my squalor, I've lost my identity as a son. No longer am I able to sit at my father's table. The best thing for me, the greatest thing that I can hope for is simply to be the one who serves dinner and the one who gently and quietly retreats into the background. And as the son is rehearsing these lines over and over again, as he gets up and goes to his father, he sees a figure, a father figure, running towards him, pursuing him. 
The great mystery of faith is that we didn't first love God, but God first loved us. We worship a king who pursues us. So often whenever we think about faith, we have the wrong idea. We think that we need to struggle and to strive and to strain to get towards God, to strain after him. And yet I wonder, what would it mean for us and our lives, our families, our workplaces, our town, the peace of our souls, if we began to see that actually God has always been pursuing us? That our story isn't an expedition story of us getting out there trying to seek God wherever he may be. Instead, what if our story is one where God has always been looking into the distance for us, longing to bring us home, running after us, relentlessly pursuing us? It may sound kind of strange, but as Henry Nyan puts it, God wants to find you as much, if not more, then you want to find him. How much would your journey towards faith change if you began to see that God isn't hiding out, trying to make it as difficult as possible for you to find him, but instead he is the one who is pursuing you. Pursuing you as you do your hiding sometimes. We don't need to strain. We don't need to strive anymore. Instead, we are able to see the figure, the father figure running towards us, pursuing us. And all we need to do is open ourselves up to embrace his love. Verse 20 says this. So he got up, went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. The kind of love that the father reveals to us is the kind of love that breaks shame, that breaks the shame in our lives. The son would have returned after eating the food the pigs ate Coming to his senses, completely frustrated and annoyed, ashamed by what he was up to. The things that he did, the things that he had seen, he was at the lowest point that he could be. And yet, with this exchange that we see in this passage, the son's shame is broken. And how is that possible? It is possible because the father has shamed himself. This is a bit weird, but stick with me. In the first century, a Middle Eastern man never ran anywhere. And the reason why is that if he were to run, he would have to hitch up his tunic so he wouldn't trip. That's pretty logical, but this is the weird part. If he did that, he would show his bare legs. But in a Middle Eastern culture back in the day, it would have been humiliating and shameful for a man to expose his bare legs. I don't really know why, but just run with me, all right? It was shameful for him to do that. And so here's the question. Why did this father want to shame himself for the sake of his son? Why did he want to do that? If a Jewish son lost his inheritance among the Gentiles, squandered all of his inheritance like this son would have done, and if that kind of son would have returned home to the village, the community would have performed a Hebrew ceremony. They would take this large clay pot and they would stand before him, blocking him from getting into the village. 
and they would have smashed it on the ground right in front of his feet. And they would have yelled Hebrew words that would have sounded like this. You are now cut off from your people. The community would have rejected him and he would be left to go. That's what should have happened in this story. And yet, what we find instead is a father running to his son before the rest of the village can get there. The father runs and shames himself in an effort to get to him first so that the son doesn't have to experience the shame and the humiliation, the taunting and the rejection. The village would have seen the elder, the father figure running towards him. They would have followed behind him. This exchange would have taken place on the boundary between the village and outside of it into the countryside. They would have seen the embrace of the father and the son And after seeing this reuniting take place, the rest of the villagers would realize that this Hebrew ceremony wouldn't need to have taken place because there would be no rejection of this son despite all that he had done. The father had taken the full shame of the son upon himself. And so the community would welcome the son back home. This has always been in the very nature of God right from the very beginning. In the garden, as Adam and Eve bit into the fruit that they should not have eaten, they realized that they were naked. And with that nakedness, they realized actually they felt something that no human had felt before. It was a thing called shame. And so they tried to cover themselves up with whatever they could find. Before that, it was really normal for Adam and Eve to walk in the cool of the day in the garden with God himself. And realizing their nakedness, they hear a voice. They hear God himself who says, where are you? An exchange takes place. A conversation takes place where Adam and Eve begin to say to God, we're naked. We're afraid. We're ashamed. It's really interesting what God does in that particular moment. The worst moment of humanity. What is known by people as the fall or the curse. God, in that moment, he clothes them with the skin of an animal. And for that to have taken place, something would have had to happen, right? A sacrifice. An animal would have needed to be slaughtered. Animal skins covering the the shame of Adam and Eve. A remarkable picture of what would happen on a Roman cross on the boundary line of Jerusalem, where one man, one Lord, one Savior, one King would take the full shame of humanity through one sacrifice, taking the full weight of that shame upon himself so that we may go free. It has always been in the nature of God, the Father, to break shame. We see it in the garden, we see it on the cross, and we see it in this place. It has always been that way. In verse 20, the story goes on. He ran and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. I want you to look at the image again on the screen. A father holding 
a dejected son so close, drawing him closer to himself. The intimacy of that, the humanity of that. A.W. Tozer says this in The Knowledge of the Holy. What comes into our minds whenever we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move towards our mental image of God and his kingdom. Whenever you think about God, what do you think of? What do you think about his character, his nature? Tozer is saying here, so often our understanding of God is skewed by our expectations of him and his nature and his character. And as humans, so often we take the logical route. I've done wrong, therefore God's going to be angry. I've sinned, therefore God is going to shame me. I've ran away from God, so God is going to do exactly the same. And so because of our expectations, our mental image of God, we think of him so often as lofty, removed, angry, waiting to catch us out at any particular moment. But what if we thought about God of being like this? This image, intimate, close, present, deeply human, Closer than the air in which we breathe. Closer than the clothes in which we are wearing. Greeting us with a kiss. What if we thought about God like this? My favorite moment in this account takes place in verses 21 and 22. The son says to the father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I want you to notice what the father does here. He doesn't really pay too much attention to what the son is saying. He doesn't even respond to the prodigal's request. Instead, he turns to his servants and says, we should get the party started, right? Prepare a banquet, get a ring, put robes on his back, get sandals on his feet, prepare the feast. What we see is the dynamic of the 180 way of the kingdom. We see it again in verse 24. One was once dead and is now alive. Once lost is now found again. This instantaneous transformation with the turning of a head away from the sin and the shame towards the celebration of a son returning home. And as a symbol of this, quickly run, get the best robe, get the sandals, get the ring. The ring to symbolize the returning of the son to the family, but also the robes. I want you to notice this, but also excuse the context um, of back in the day. Because to wear the best robes would mean that actually this son wouldn't be dressed like a slave. The best that he would have hoped for would have been one who would have served to have been that slave, yet he was, this robe was put on him, the best kind of robe, a robe that symbolized that actually the son was now free. He was a free man, bound by nothing. If you drop down to verse 28, we have the account of the elder brother. I don't have time to unpack it for us, but... Um, to put it simply, he is outside, he is not happy. And the, the elder brother is striving for the father's affection. 
He's trying to satisfy the father's desires based on his performance. And actually, the way that he acts is an awful lot like the religious leaders of the day that we read about in verses 1 and 2. Look how much I've done for you, and yet you welcome him. You welcome this guy after all that he has done. And yet even in the striving of the elder brother, I want you to notice what the father does. He humbles himself. He gets up from his own table. He leaves his own party. He goes out in the same direction that he would have went out for the younger brother, and he invites the elder brother back in. He invites him to come, pull up a chair, pull up a chair at a very different kind of table, not a table of striving, a table full of those who have worked hard and got it all together, but a table that is surrounded by a melting pot of people of sinners and scribes who find themselves in communion with each other, fellowshipping at a very different kind of table. No longer a table of shame or a table that serves up the food of pigs, nor is it the table of striving where we get to drink the sweat of hard work and performance because the Father has prepared a very different kind of table. A, ter- a table that is surrounded by those who are not bound by the identities that the world has put on them or the identities that they have put on themselves. Not bound by what they've done or haven't done, their successes or their failures. This table looks a bit weird. It looks otherworldly. It looks like a very different kind of kingdom. A table that on one level has the CEO and the child sitting beside each other. The addict and the priest the assured and the anxious, the criminal and the parent, the father and the prodigal. But if you look that little bit closer, you will see that everybody sitting around that kind of table is wearing something strange. New robes. The robes of the family. Robes that are marked by freedom. Because at this particular particular table, there are only sons and daughters who have experienced the embrace and the kiss of a humble father. See what kind of love the father has poured out on us. A pursuing love, a shame-breaking love, an intimate love, a transformative love, and an inviting love so that we should be called the children of God, and that is who we are. I want to land this morning with a quote from one of my heroes, Henry Nouwen, who says this as he reflects on this particular parable. He wants to speak about home. Home is the center of my being, where I can hear the voice that says, you are my beloved, on you my favor rests. The same voice that gave life to the first Adam and spoke to Jesus, the second Adam, the same voice that speaks to all the children of God and sets them free to live in the midst of a dark world whilst remaining in the light. I have heard that voice. It has spoken to me in the past and continues to speak to me now. It is the never-interrupted voice of love speaking from eternity and giving life and love whenever it is heard. When I hear that voice, I know that I am home with God and I've got nothing to fear. As the beloved of my heavenly father, I can walk in the valley of darkness and and no evil would I fear. As the beloved, I can cure the sick, I can raise the dead, I can cleanse the lepers and I can cast out devils. 
Having received without charge, I can give without charge. As the beloved, I can confront, I can console, I can admonish and encourage without fear of rejection or the need for affirmation. As the beloved, I am free to live and to give life, free also to die whilst giving life. And here's the thing that I want to land with. Jesus has made it clear to me that the same voice that he heard at the River Jordan whenever he was risen out of the waters of baptism and on Mount Tabor, on the mountain of the Transfiguration, those words that Jesus heard can also be heard by me. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He made it clear to me that just as he has his home with the father, so do I. These words reveal my true dwelling place, my true abode, my true home. Faith is the radical trust that home has always been there and will always be there. Those words, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, and you, I am well pleased. Those words are home. They're home to us. Those words are the sound of the celebration party ringing. You our beloved son, you are a beloved daughter. In you, the Lord is well pleased. So welcome home. Two weeks before I was going to get married to Em, my mum took me out for coffee. We went to Ground, just in Sprucefield. Getting married is a big deal. It's that moment whenever you leave your family behind and you begin to start the journey towards a new family. And mum wanted to sit down and share just one thought with me. And as we were chatting away um, and enjoying coffee and getting excited about the wedding in two weeks' time, um, she began to talk about my grandparents' kitchen table, which is a bit of a left-field turn, but um, there's a picture of it, actually, if you want to flick up. That's my grandfather and my brother with his crazy ginger hair. Um, that table that my grandfather's sitting at um, has been around as long as I have. Um, it's still there. My granny lives just off Kensington Park, just around the corner. And for 30 years that I've been around, I've um, ate breakfast there, lunch, dinner, had loads of parties. It only fits four people in, but like we're able to fit like 30 people around it somehow. It just kind of seems to work. It's really rickety. Um, but it's still there and it's still standing. And my mum, looking ahead to Em and I getting married, she wanted to say this one thing to me. She said, son, there's one thing I want you to know. Um, that my, and my mum's a queen. Like she, like she is just a remarkable woman. Um, so many responsibilities. She's raised two sons who are relatively sane. Um, um, that's just me, not talking about my brother. Um, like her and my dad's marriage is just remarkable and she like just pours herself out for people and she's incredibly busy um but she wanted to say this that regardless of anything that's going on all the weights all the responsibilities there was one place that she could go and sit down and she said these words feel every single weight being lifted off my shoulders and i could simply sit and breathe and be a daughter. And it was that table. It's still that table. And whenever mum was sharing this story to me, um, I couldn't help but think about the table that we're just about to gather around ourselves. A table of bread and wine 
the table that Jesus initiated with his friends the night before he was crucified. The table that reminds us of the kind of love that has been poured out for us so that we can experience the love of God, so that we may be those who can find home knowing that we're the beloved. And as a community, we're going to share bread and wine together to remember and to stand in the victory of the remarkable and victorious sacrifice of Jesus that we'll actually be able to taste and see once again that Jesus is present with us and he has poured a remarkable love upon us.